So now you're rubbing elbows with Barbara Mandrell and Buck Owens and all the stars at the ACM Awards. But like you said, that commercial success hadn't happened yet. And it would be a couple more years before it would. 1997, your breakthrough single, Shut Up and Drive, comes out. And there's all kinds of charts you can use to monitor the success of it. But on Billboard, it was top 15, and you're off and running. Yeah, and and, and on I think maybe on one of the charts, R&R, it was a top 10 record. Uh, and like you just mentioned, top 15 on another chart. I have to tell you, it behaved as if it were a number one record. Uh, when I do that song and Single White Female in the same show still to this day, uh, it gets as resounding a response as any song as Single White Female does. Um, and I, I will never forget uh, where I was when, when that song broke into that top part of the, the chart. I had just gotten off my bus in Nashville and was driving to my house in, in Nashville. And Bill Cody um, from uh, WSM-FM called me on the phone. And uh, he said, girl, you've got a hit. I'm about to play it on, on the radio. And so I turned on my radio and, and heard it blaring in Nashville. And it was a great feeling. That's awesome. And the song itself is an anthem for women everywhere who are trying to get out of a bad situation. It is. And I still, uh, I'm not exa- it's not hyperbole when I tell you I get a piece of mail or email or a direct message or Facebook message about that song every day. And it's it's at 99.9%. It's from a woman who said, I just want you to know that that song is the song that whispered in my ear that helped me get out of an abusive relationship or helped me, you know, find my confidence and, you know, tell a, a, a chauvinistic boss to take this job and shove it or whatever <laughs> it might be. Um, I hear daily about that song and how it was uh, an anthem for, for women and, and, I just, uh, I just, I will always love that song. And I, you know, it was written by uh, Sam and Annie Tate and Rivers Rutherford. And the first time I heard the the demo, my A and R guy Larry Willoughby at MCA Records, we went to, uh, we were out for the day looking for songs all day long, didn't find anything. And we were at a at a publishing company, and they played us five or six things, and we were about to leave, and. I stopped and I said, hey, you guys, will you play me the one song in your catalog that that you sort of want to play for me, but you think is a little bit too out there? And they looked at one another and they said, yeah, we got one more for you. And it was Shut Up and Drive. Oh, wow. Wow. So you were, you were looking for something to maybe stretch the boundaries a little bit? I was. I, you know, obviously, uh, Shut Up and Drive is a pretty edgy title. Um, and it was, I think could be classified as maybe a novelty song. I mean, I don't even, I, you hear that in radio and in the industry a lot. You know, there are certain songs that kind of fall under that category. And I think it kind of rode the fence of fundamentally, it's just a well-written song. Um, but it, it also kind of is just, like you said, it pushes the boundaries a little bit and it could be a little bit, bound, uh, you know, a uh, novelty song. And I think that's why they didn't play it for me. They just they didn't think that's what I was looking for. They thought I was looking for something safe. Um, and and Larry and I, we were just we both looked at one another when we when we heard the opening of the song. And I think we both knew. I mean, you could ask Larry, but we've talked about it over the years. We both got chills, and that's a that's a pretty good indicator. You know, it's interesting. I was just talking to Dina Carter about this a couple of weeks ago. The fact that mid to late 90s, women were starting to really push those boundaries, and it really made for some great music during that time. 
Well, it did, and, and no one did it better and with more success than Dina Carter. I mean, um, that record, that, that first record she came out of the gate with, uh, she really kind of reset everything for all of us. And there had been a trajectory of, you know, women like Faith Hill and Shania and myself and Martina, Jody Messina, Terry Clark. We were, we were, you know, we were getting some traction. We, we were really selling records and getting airplay and, and landing big tours. And then Dina came out and just put her own twist on it. And I think it, it added, she added a lot of fuel to the fire of female singer songwriters who could get it done. And, and, uh, you know, she, she hopped in there and just kind of fortified the whole thing for everybody, I think. Now, you also mentioned Single White Female, which was your first number one monster hit in 1999. Tell me the story about recording that one. You know, I've told this story only a few times, um, and I love telling it. Uh, there are a lot of things to say about that song. There, I found it in a pile of demo tapes, actually demo CDs. Uh, I went to the label. I was back in town for a few days, went to the label, and they had a box of stuff for me, and nobody had gone through it yet. So I said, I'll take it home and listen to it, and I... I heard the song and called Tony Brown at midnight, left him a message and said, I, I, I'm going to come play something for you tomorrow. Uh, that's back before you could email, you know, MP3s. <laughs> and um, anyway, so I want to tell you the story about the day that we recorded it. So it was written by Carolyn Don Johnson mm-hmm. and Shea Smith, uh, neither of whom had had a, a big hit record before. I don't, I don't even know if Carolyn had ever had a cut before, um, but... Uh, and Shay maybe had had a cut, but never a hit. And so we went to Masterphonics uh, over there on Music Row, and um, uh, the, the the producers were um, Tony Brown, Buddy Cannon, and Nora Wilson. Um, and we spent the day uh, cutting some songs, and then it was almost lunchtime, and it was about to, you know, we were about to take a break for lunch, and the next song up to, to record was Single White Female. And Tony very wisely said, you know what? Let's listen to this one, to the demo, before we go to lunch. That way everyone can kind of feel and think about kind of the pocket and just kind of marinate on what this next song will be that we're going to cut. Let's, let's listen before lunch. So we all came into the control room, this huge A band, a, you know, top drawer band. And, um, and Eddie Bears, who played uh, drums on it, he said, let's go, you know, let's, let's go listen let, or let's go out and run one before lunch. Let's just get one recorded just so we can feel how it feels. And we recorded one, and then the band leader said, let's do it again, do it again. And all the guys, nobody said, no, man, I'm hungry. Everybody said, let's do it again, let's do it again. So we cut it like maybe three times, and on the third time, I just felt, from the very intro, I just felt like this is the track, this is the one, this is the take. And so I sang it, I, I did the vocal as if that were the record. And I, you know, you can hear it, my voice cracks, and I kind of get raspy at the end, and I sing it end to end. And this was, you know, as far as we knew, this was just a pass that we were going to prepare before we, um, before we had lunch and then come back and really get the recording. But in this moment, I made eye contact with Eddie, and Eddie just nodded his head, and Steve Gibson looked at me and nodded his head. So we just did it, you know, a hundred percent. And that was the record. I didn't change a single bit of my vocal. That was the record. It was the pass that we were just going to knock out before lunch. And I, I went back and 
couple days later, Buddy and I went into the studio and I said, Buddy, I want to fix that part right there. And he just shook his head and laughed. He said, I'm going to let you try. He said, but you're not ever going to beat that vocal. And he was right. <laughs> just rode the momentum of a quick session before lunch. You know, you, when you get a singer in the room, they're always the last to know whether they've gotten the vocal. You know, we want to fix everything, make it perfect. And and they just said, you, you just no matter what you do, you could, you could, you know, there that's that note's a little scratchy or that one is a little, you know, you scoop up to the note a little bit. But they were like, you're never going to beat the performance. That is the performance. And it was magic in the room and everybody knew it. Um, and uh, when the label got it, uh, they, you know, they took it to the, you know, how they have those annual label meetings where they go plan and get the marketing plan together. Um, I recall that the label came back from that meeting and they said, you know, Tony Brown said, this is going to be your first number one record. Yeah. And, they, and, it, and it was. They were right. And then Trisha Yearwood's vocals were added to it, right? Yeah. Trisha came in and sang the background vocal on that. Uh, she also was my background singer on Shut Up and Drive. So she's kind of a secret weapon for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How much does that boost your confidence moving forward now that you've gotten that first number one out of the way? Um. Well, I think that uh, confidence is important, but um, understanding how you got there is more important. Uh, I, I say this because had my first single out of the gate gone to number one, I think I would have had an un, uh, unwise sense of self. Um, having had two albums, six singles that essentially didn't break, you know, before Single White Female and Shut Up and Drive, I think it was really good for me. I was very young. I was, you know, 23 years old, 24 when my first record came out. Uh, I didn't have my first hit until I was 27, and then I was 29 when Single White Female hit number one. And I'd been on the game for a while. I'd been out on the music scene for a while. Um, I think I had a restrained amount of confidence um, that made me know how fleeting and fragile success is in the music industry. And I think... Um, having that kind of served me well because I was able to, you know, add add to my career and continue making records. And you you get more no's in the, this town in this industry than um, than you get yeses. Um, and so once you do get that big yes, which was a big number one record, it feels really good. But but you you know, it's it's appropriately couched among a lot of the other rejections and uh, how do I say it in other terms failures. Um, so it's important to, you know, it, it's good to get a win every now and again. I'm not going to kid you. That felt really good. And it was a good, it was great for my team. And we all kind of got to celebrate and take a little breath and go, okay, we at least, here's what we do know. We do know we're going to get to do this, this at least a little while longer. And that's really all you're looking for in music. And then you'd put another win up right after you followed it up with It Was, which for me is right up there with Single White Female and, and, and Shut Up and Drive as, as one of my favorite songs, if not my favorite song of yours. I really enjoyed It Was. Yeah, I, I, I love that song, and I love the record and the video. You know, that's back in the days when videos were really important, and the video was a, a big hit as well. Um, you know, I, I was, I was on, on tour with Ben Skill at the time, right before It Was came out. And, you know, Vince and I had been friends for a long, long time. And, you know, Vince was having a ball watching me have my first hit record. I remember, you know, backstage, he'd, you know, he'd look at me and he'd go, you're about to have a hit. You're about to have a hit, Shelbel. And, you know, and, and, and he was thrilled to, to watch it again. It was like that Barbara Mandrell moment where 
they just really love watching it because they know what it feels like. And nobody else knows what that feels like um, to, to, you know, finally, among all of that talent that comes out of Nashville, to finally get It's like a hole in one. The chances of getting it are just so slim. And I was out on the road with Vince when we were about to release um, uh, It Was, and we were playing the uh, Universal Amphitheater there um, in, uh, in L.A., and Patty Loveless was on the show. And I just, I remember that run of shows just being, okay, I've loved Patty Loveless for so long. And I love Vince and Patty together. And when they sing together, it's a magic that is, you know, only paralleled by, by you know, uh, Porter and Dolly and Conway and Loretta mm-hmm. and George and Tammy. There's something special on a, on a Patty and Vince show. And I was just, I was so happy to be opening that show. And Patty, um, I don't know, I think she stepped on my bus, which was amazing in and of itself. And I was about to watch the VHS tape that the producers, uh, the last edit uh, of it was. I was about to watch the final edit of that video. And I, she gets on the bus, so I hit stop. And she said, no, what is that? And I said, well, it's, it's my new video that, you know, I'm, I have to approve it for the, the new song that's coming out. And uh, she said, well, I want to watch it. And I sat on my bus with Patty Loveless and watched It Was, and she said, that is so good. She said, I love that song. She said, I think that's my favorite song I've heard you sing yet. And she said, dang it, I wish I, I wish that was my video. <laughs> and I just, I mean, my da- I floated the rest of the night. I just floated around. I don't, I don't really remember doing the show because I was just floating around. High praise from one of the greats right there. That's awesome. Right. No kidding. <laughs> and Patty, you know, her videos were you know, she's oh, yeah. beautiful and cool, and she was making such cool videos. And she said, "I wish that was my video." <laughs> Your videos were quite fantastic. I was uh, I was watching a lot of CMT back in the late '90s and early 2000s, and I, I would rank yours right up there. Well, you know, it, it was a thing. You know, videos were really important, and CMT and TNN were, you know, big players in the game. And and for whatever reason, I mean, I I always had uh, was lucky to work with the best directors and producers and hair and makeup people and set designers and uh, wardrobe folks. I just, I really, and, and Trey Fanjoy, she directed a lot of my videos that were really big hits, uh, like Jezebel and Never Love You Enough. And um, and I just, I we just kind of hit a little run there, and we made some pretty great videos. But, again, I, that was a big part. If, even if a song didn't go top ten, I think the videos are the things that made it, made them so recognizable and people really attached to them. And, made them feel like bigger commercial hits than they were. In fact, I think that is where I first heard of Shelley Wright was by watching CMT. I think it was probably the single white female video is what, you know, made me uh, start listening to your music. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. You, you mentioned Jezebel, which was the next song I wanted to ask you about. You probably hear this all the time, but you definitely get some serious Jolene vibes with, with that song, except there's more of a bite to it. Like, I'm not just going to let you have him. I'm going to fight for him. That type of thing. Yeah. And I just found out that Jay DeMarcus of Rascal Flats helped write that song along with Marcus Hummond. He did. Yeah. The song, um, Jay and I, you know, Jay used to be in my band and so did Joe Don uh, Rooney. That's how they met. They, the Rascal Flats actually were two guys in my band and they met and uh, that's how they formed Rascal I, Flats. I had no um, idea. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. they. Um, I hired Joe Don out of Oklahoma, sight unseen. I'd heard his demo tape and hired him. He drove through an ice storm to get to Nashville, and 
the night he got there, uh, he was staying with, with my drummer Preston, who actually introduced me to him and played him my played me his tape. Um, I said, "Tell him he's got a job. Tell him to get to town." And Joe Don drove through an ice storm and got there, and I, I took him out to dinner, and then I took him out to Third and Lindsley to hear some music, and we're walking to the back of the restaurant or back of the club, and and uh, I, I I knew he loved Vince Gill, and Vince and I were pals, and I, I, what I didn't tell him was that we were meeting Vince there to listen to music, and so <laughs> Joe Don's first night in town, he, he got a, a belly full of good food, and he got to hang out with his hero, Vince wow. Gill. But anyway, uh, Jay and I had, you know, always remained friends after Rascal Flatts uh, got up and running and having hit records. And Joe Don called, or Jay called me and said, "I've got a got a song Marcus and I wrote for you." Um, and he brought it over to the house, and it wasn't quite finished. Um, and I made a couple of suggestions on a couple of lines, and he said, "Oh, that's great. Let me take it back to Marcus." And he took it back to Marcus, and. Uh, he said, Marcus loves it, and I said, great, I'll cut it, and, and there you have it. Another great song and great video, and I learned something new. I guess we can thank you for Rascal Flatts. Uh, you can thank Rascal Flatts for Rascal Flatts, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm part of their part of their story and proud to be. You also co-wrote a song for Clay Walker that, that's one of my favorite Clay Walker songs, and I Can't Sleep, um, which he took uh, top ten a few years later. Um, what was it like to, to write that one and work with Clay? Yeah, so Clay and I were on tour, and we'd, you know, we'd been friendly. We'd toured off and on together over the years, and I, I always always loved touring with Clay and, and George Strait and Mark Chestnut and those guys from Texas because they always, I mean, it was like showing up at a venue with, with the Beatles. Uh, you know, Texas audiences really turn out. I mean, I traveled did toured all over the United States with those guys, but primarily when we were in the Southwest, those guys were it, and you could always count on a big tour, and it was just exciting. And I I loved my dates with with Clay Walker, and then years later uh, we ended up being booked on a show in Grand Junction, Colorado together. Um, and I'm not sure I'm sure Clay was going on after me, but I think there were people there were maybe four or five different artists on the show, and and I, I can't remember if I'd gone on stage already or not, or if I don't know exactly what happened, but we were backstage and we were on Clay's bus and, and um, we were both talking about the night's sleep we had the night before. I think we'd traveled through some weather and, you know, in, in a tour bus and it's, it's windy and stormy, you know, it's, you can, it's just the bus blows and tips a little bit and it's a little bit unsettling. And, um, I said something about, well, I, I can't, he said something about, you know, you should take a nap. And I said, oh, I can't sleep. And he said, well, we ought to write that. And so we grabbed a guitar and we, we sat backstage and worked on that song. You know, we had a verse and a chorus. And then um, I went back home to Nashville and we hadn't finished it or it needed some editing or something, but I finished it and sent it to Clay and, and, and I didn't think much about it until a few months later. He called me and said, hey, I'm going to cut that song. And I was like, cool. And then uh, it made the record. And then he called and said, it's a single. And then we had a hit. 